Well, I wonder how you feel about 2019. How do you feel about 2019? As we approach the end of a year, it's really appropriate to pause and take stock and reflect on the year that's gone by. A new year is only 10 days away. Can you believe it? What has this year been like for you? What have we learned from it? Just think with me a moment about, about the personal and the political. Now personally, I feel more aware of the brokenness of this world than ever. Do you? It feels that we know more people than ever who are struggling with the brokenness and the realities of life. It may be that you're one of them. On the one hand, there is a, a, a mental health epidemic. I spoke at the University of Manchester Christian Union this term. One of the student leaders told me that one in four students at Manchester University uh, says they have issues with their mental health or depression. One in four. One in eight say they don't have any friends. 17 students committed suicide at our university last year. Just one year. 17 young people. These are bright young adults with their whole life ahead of them. It's a rising tide. People are increasingly fragile, they feel isolated, they feel vulnerable, unable to cope with life. Older people tutting and saying, man up, is no solution. Secondly, relationship problems. Now for several decades in the Western world, our culture has been pressing an agenda that says this, happiness is to be found by identifying your own deepest desires and pursuing them whatever the cost. And our culture has been saying, you can be whoever you want to be. And whatever you want to do, you can achieve it. Whatever you want to have, you can have. And now we're reaping the harvest of this. Because it doesn't work. We have a culture of isolation as people are ill-equipped for the personal sacrifice that's necessary to build relationships. You know, if you want rich, deep, lasting relationships and real community, you have to be prepared to die to yourself. But who wants to do that? Who wants to accept the obligations of loving another person, even when they're not nice? And then there's economic pressure. Now, Britain has an admirable welfare system, but government changes in it can place huge pressure on people. In recent times, some people have been moved from tax credits to universal credit. Perhaps you're one of them. But the move from tax credits to universal credits was accompanied by a gap of several weeks where people received no payments. And these are people who relied on those credits uh, for their day-to-day -day -day living. And it plunged some of them into deep crisis. Many more jobs nowadays are on short-term contracts or part-time or zero-hours contracts. Now, so people have got work, but their work is very unstable, it's unpredictable, they don't know uh, when they're, whether they'll be working again next month. In January of this year, the Independent newspaper reported that over one-third of British people had put Christmas on their credit card <laughs> with no plans of how to pay it when the New Year came. And the growing reliance on credit has now led us to the highest personal debt levels in recent history. The average person in this country owes over £8,000 on credit, not including mortgage repayments. So that's the personal sphere. 
And then there's the political one. What did we learn from the general election 10 days ago? John Stevens is the president of the FIEC, that's the, the association of churches that we belong to. John Stevens wrote this before the election. I feel increasingly depressed about the state of British politics. It seems to me that we have a choice to make between deeply flawed candidates advocating deeply flawed manifestos. In a starker way than in any other recent elections, it feels as if wisdom means choosing the least worst option from anything that is on the ballot. None of the above is not a real alternative. So it comes down to who will do the least damage to the nation and the cause of the gospel within it. I begin to have more empathy for evangelical Christians in the United States who voted for Trump. I might not have agreed with their calculation that he was better than Hillary, but I have much more understanding of the dilemma they faced. The question that interests me most is this, how has it come to this? It was not that long ago that the electorate was filled with hope and optimism and singing, things can only get better. Today there is little enthusiasm, and many are simply hoping that things won't get much worse. The root cause is obviously the desperate spiritual state of our nation and that people have turned away from trusting the Lord Jesus and living by his word. This ought to make us weep and pray for revival. Amen. Now I'm well aware, by the way, that compared to the corrupt political scene of many countries and some of those home countries of people at Grace Church, British people are really fortunate with the system that we have. But nevertheless, many of us are not full of hope. So, Merry Christmas. <laughs> now, in all seriousness, the end of the year is a good time to take stock of the world and our lives. So let me ask a few questions. Where will we find the resources to live well in the next year? Where will we find the resources to move forward with confidence and even joy into 2020? What are we going to build our lives on in the next year? And these are serious questions, and the Bible gives us serious and profound answers. So we're going to turn to the end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, and we will seek God's wisdom and God's perspective on our lives and on our times. And I want to think about three aspects of this amazing chapter with you. They are the scroll, the lamb, and the purchase. The scroll, the lamb, and the purchase. First of all, the scroll. Now, if you've never read Revelation before, or you're new to church, you may be wondering what is going on. You may have been wondering that when Helen read the chapter for us. The book of Revelation gives us an incredible vision of reality, and it takes us behind the scenes of the, the visible into how things really are. It's as if God pulls back the curtain and let's us see the command centre of the universe, the throne room of heaven, and he shows us who is really in charge and what is going on in history. Revelation is really a wonderful book and it is also deeply weird. That's because it was written in a style that's called apocalyptic. Its writer, John, was a brilliant artist. He was working in this kind of literature that was popular at the time. And this, in this writing, weird things seem to happen, and there's symbolic things, but you have to look behind, beneath the surface to get at the, meeting, and we, the meaning, and we have to think hard. 
It's symbolic. Now, if you imagine somebody in, taking a person who lived in the first century and, and through some time travel, bringing them into your living room and sitting them down on your sofa and showing them an episode of Star Trek, you would understand what was going on in Star Trek. You would understand that uh, you'd know how it works. You know that Star Trek isn't a documentary, right? It's not factual, but it's depicting stories and things about reality through, through science fiction. But if someone came from the first century and saw that, they would be completely confused. And they'd think, what? How, who are these people with pointy ears? And, you know, how did they, how did they get a spaceship like that in the sky? Uh, so for us to look back into this kind of literature is a bit like us looking into their world because they know how it works and they know that you don't read this literally but you look for the meaning behind the images. Now John, the writer, has been taken by the Holy Spirit in, in a vision into the throne room of heaven and in chapter 4 he sees this beautiful vision of the enthroned creator God who's worshipped by the representatives of God's people from every age and by every living thing in all creation. But that's heaven. What about on earth? In heaven there is joy and righteousness and peace. But on earth, there's often injustice and violence and chaos. Will sin and evil and death have the last word in history? Is global warming and nuclear warfare going to be the end of all things? What follows in chapter 5 is this drama that answers those questions. And it gives us the guarantee that God purposes that his grace and his salvation will have the last word and prevail forever. So look, look with me again at, at verses 1 to 4. Frank, can you bring them up? Here we are. Uh, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now the one who sits on the throne is God, almighty God. And in his right hand is a scroll, a sealed document made of parchment, and it's got writing both inside and outside, both sides, and it's sealed with seven seals. What is this? Now writing on both sides indicated that there was a lot to be said. And such a scroll is given to the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel chapter 2. And in that case, it's announcing judgment. When he's given the scroll, it says on both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. So some people have concluded that this scroll is just God's judgment on the world. But in the book of Revelation, whenever one of the seals gets open, we see God's plan being unfolded for the world. And God's plan for the world includes both judgment on human sin and also redemption and rescue for his people. So it's fair to conclude that the scroll contains God's plan for history, which is his judgment and his rescue. In verse 2, a mighty angel shouts out in this wonderful loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals? and open the scroll. You see, it's vital in this drama that somebody can open the scroll, not just to read it, but also to carry out God's plans for the world and sort the world out. But who is worthy to do this? What human being is able, is worthy, to deal with the sin of humanity, to roll back the powers of evil, corruption, to establish the eternal, joyful kingdom of God? The question is asked, 
And then there is silence. Verse 3. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. There is nobody worthy to do this, not one. It's as if they have a good look everywhere. You know, they look in heaven and on earth and under the earth. They're really lifting up the carpet. They're trying to find anybody who can deal with what God is bringing to the world and no one is there. And so in verse 4, we read these very poignant words. John weeps. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John looks into the throne room of heaven and he sees a problem that is so profound that it breaks his heart. Since the beginning of the world, God has determined to rule the world through humanity. Yet there is not a single person in the human race who is worthy to do so. It is a disaster. It is a tragedy. Just let that sit in your mind for a moment. Here is God's plan for the world that needs to be exercised in order for all the problems and brokenness to be sorted. And yet there is nobody to do it. No one has been found. And if no one could deal with that problem, then we would have a lot to weep about. John Richardson was a, a vicar and a scholar. He studied the, the book of Revelation and wrote a very excellent short commentary on it. Richardson says, imagine somebody who is, has got fear of flying. They're terrified of airplanes, but they have to take a journey. And so they're on a plane and the plane's in the air. And somebody says to them, look, I know you're scared, just come down to the cockpit and uh, we'll, we'll show you how it all works. You know, put your mind at rest. So they say, okay, okay. So they go down and you know where the, the captain sits behind the door in the plane and they open the door and this person looks inside and sees there in the cockpit of the plane is no one. There's no one there. There's the, the captain's jumped out in a, in a parachute. And then there's no one else found on the plane. There's no one found worthy to fly the plane. And John Richardson says, then I wept much. <laughs> That's the scroll. You're on the plane and there's nobody who can land it. But let's move on because we read that there is actually one found who is worthy to open the scroll. He is able to action God's plan and to deal with history. And here he is called the Lamb. So we've thought about the scroll, now we're thinking about the lamb. Look at verses 5 to 8. Verses 5 to 8. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now just notice what's happening here. This is very precious. It's amazing that God allows human weeping to interrupt the worship of heaven. You notice that? In the throne room of heaven, everybody's worshipping God, and yet this person's crying interrupts. And one of the elders is one of the representatives of God's people. He even has to go over and reassure John and tell him, no, you don't have to cry. You don't have to cry. Weep no more. Heaven, it seems, is permeable to the cries and the pains of humanity. The cries of men and women come up into the presence of God. And the elders' words are so beautiful. Do not weep. See, there is a conquering king here. He has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. 
That is, he can carry out God's plan and sort the world out. And the elder uses two great titles from the Old Testament for the Messiah. The Lion of Judah and the Root of David. The Lion of Judah from Genesis chapter 49. This was a prediction that there would be a ruler coming from the line of Judah, one of his descendants, who would be like a great lion. And the lion, of course, is an image of majesty and strength and power, the king of the beasts. And the root of David is an image taken from Isaiah, from Isaiah chapter 11, that a descendant of David would come from David's line. Even though all the, the tree was hacked down, there'd be a root that would grow a branch out. And this one would bring forward God's kingdom into the world. And of course, if you've been at Grace Church during the last term, you'll have heard a lot about God's promises to King David. So here they are, they're going to be, be realised in this person, the lion. So we're expecting majesty and strength and power. And we turn and notice the paradox. Just pause for a moment, see what he sees. Verse 6. Then I saw a lamb. A lamb. Perhaps the most poignant image of something that's gentle. Vulnerable. A lamb, a meek creature, not very easily led and easily killed. And here it, it's not just a lamb, it's a sacrificial lamb. It looks as if it's been slain. A slaughtered lamb. Now what we have here, friends, is the most amazing picture of Jesus Christ. So let's dwell on this for a few moments. He is a slaughtered lamb, a sacrificial lamb, yet standing. We have good evidence from the New Testament that Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, still bears on him the marks of his crucifixion. The risen Lord Jesus, when he appeared to the doubting apostle Thomas, said, see my hands and my side. He still bears the marks of slaughter. And this lamb, which looks as if it's slain, which is standing, is in the centre of the throne. That means he is in the centre of power and authority. He reigns on God's throne. And he has seven horns. Now you notice the word seven. The number seven is coming up quite a bit. Seven is the number of completion in Revelation, the number of perfection. He has the, the complete power. That's what seven horns mean. The power of God, and yet he also has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits, or the sevenfold spirit of God. In other words, he has complete wisdom and insight and knowledge. He can exercise his power with great wisdom because he knows all things through God's spirit. In other words, here in this lamb, at last, is one who is able to do for us all that we need, but we could not do for ourselves. Will sin and evil and death have the last word in history? No. Because of the Lion of Judah, who is a lamb. Verse 7, he comes and takes the scroll. He now has divine authority over the future of the human race for salvation and for judgment. History is in Jesus Christ's hands now. And in verse 8, the response of the whole of creation and the whole of the people of God is to fall down before him. Notice, they have got instruments, uh, harps, that they can play and praise him with. And they also have golden bowls full of incense, which it says are the prayers 
of God's people. In other words, your prayers, Christian friend, not only make it into heaven, but they are precious and fragrant to God like precious incense, and they move him to action. God has your prayers in golden bowls in his presence in heaven. So this is what we see when we get a glimpse. The curtain's pulled back. We get a glimpse into the throne room of heaven. We see this scroll, and then we see the lamb. And thirdly and finally, we see a purchase. A purchase. Frank, can you bring up verses 9 and 10? There it is. They sang a new song. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased persons for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Verse 9 gives the reason why the Lamb is worthy. It is because of something. Can you see it? Because of what? Someone want to shout it out? Yes, because you were slain on the cross. And with your blood you purchased people for God. Now this language of purchase, in some versions it's ransom, is buying or acquiring property to secure the rights to something by paying the price for it. And it's the word that was used in the Roman world for the slave market. Somebody could go down to the market and they were selling people there, selling slaves, and they would pay the ransom price and the slaves would become their property. John is saying here that by his blood, Jesus Christ has paid the price for all these people. From every tribe and language and nation, Jesus Christ has paid for them to belong to him to liberate them from their old way of life and bring them into his service, which is perfect freedom. He has set us free from the old masters, Satan, sin, death. He set us free from them, and now we move in the liberty, the glorious freedom of the sons and daughters of God. We serve a new Lord now, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a vivid way of talking about his cross. At the cross, Jesus was slain and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins, for many. And John is saying, just look at the people he has bought. They're from every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, Christianity is a global religion and we should be pressing forward to take the great good news to all people groups. And that job is not finished. This is why at Grace Church we try and make sure that our mission's money is spent primarily among those reaching unreached people groups. It's, a, it's one of our policies. Another implication of this text, by the way, is the end of racism. Because Jesus has died for people from every single ethnic background. There can be no more superiority of one ethnic group over another. There is no room here for discrimination. We are all one in Christ Jesus. But, you know, we might expect that human beings, being what they are, all drawn from these different kind of groups, might quickly start fighting. But John's vision shows that they've been brought together into one people by the Lamb, and they have a job to do. Verse 10, they reign on the earth as a kingdom and as priests to our God. This is what human beings were made for. 
to reign on the earth, to run the world for God's glory. It's the original project that was given to humanity back in Genesis 1 and 2, finally realised at the end of history. God's future here shows us a world with a new humanity made up like a vast, beautiful patchwork quilt of people from every conceivable background and ethnic group, and they are all together. They're all one. They're in harmony. And they reign over the earth, not fighting. And that is the future. That's the guaranteed future. How does it come about? How does John think it's going to happen? How could this new state of affairs arrive? Because the Lamb takes the scroll and purchases people by his blood. All of this happens because of Jesus Christ and his cross. Now in a few moments we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And as we do so, we remember Jesus' death on the cross for us and we anticipate the final restoration of all things when he returns. But before we do so, let me just come back to those few questions from the start of this message. Where will we find the resources to live well in this world? Where will we find the resources to move forward with confidence and joy in 2020? What are we going to build our lives on next year? And here are some implications of Revelation chapter 5. Firstly, weep no more. Weep no more. We don't have to weep. There is someone in the cockpit of the plane. God has got it under control, even when it doesn't look like it. Specifically, Jesus Christ is flying the plane. Don't accept that counsel of despair from your own heart that you think it's all doomed to go wrong and you were destined to fail. There are dark days ahead, perhaps, but the horizon is bright with the promises of God who will make all things new. And he is at work in the world and in your life right now. Weep no more. Secondly, let us pray. Revelation 5 reveals that your heart cries are heard even in the presence of God in the worship of heaven. And your prayers are present there in golden bowls. Peter Lewis, who's a pastor in Nottingham, wrote this. Don't you think you ought to pray more? And more confidently, one day we will find what God has done throughout history by the prayers of his people, and then we will all wish that we had prayed more. The strength of prayer is precisely the strength of God who uses it. The potential of prayer is the power of God. So let's pray. Thirdly, give thanks. A life of gratitude, of grateful thanks, is surely the only appropriate response to all that God has done for us and all that God is doing for us and giving to us through Jesus. Yet we so easily forget, don't we? We so easily take him for granted. You know, gratitude is actually good for your mental health. If you start the day with thanking God, if you thank God routinely throughout the day, if you, if you, you finish the day before you go to bed thanking God for all his goodness for you, it actually does you good. And it's a fitting response to what God has done. Let's resolve to be thankful people in 2020, shall we? Worship, thankful worship, is the theme music of heaven. Let's join in now. Fourth, reassess your suffering. Reassess your suffering. Christians want to know that Jesus the lion is on our side. And there is truth in that. 
He is on our side. He is powerful. He can do things about our situation. But when life is inexplicably bad, when life is apparently irredeemably going wrong, the idea of Jesus being the lion might not be that comforting to you. But listen, at that moment, remember that he is the lamb. He's the one who suffered in his life and still bears those scars. And in his life experience and in his memory, Jesus understands weakness and abandonment. This is tremendously good news for us. He is with us, not just when he lifts us up strong, but also when we feel forsaken. He truly does understand us in his solidarity with hurting humanity even now in his heavenly glory. Reassess your suffering. And finally, let me just say, Jesus is worthy. He's worthy. He really is. He's worthy of your heart and soul and all of you. He's worthy of your love and praise. And as we lead up to the Lord's Supper, just meditate on that image of, see that here the, the lion of the tribe of Judah is triumphed and look and see the slaughtered lamb. What the mighty lion did for us, with all his power and strength, was to become weak, to accept humility and suffering even to the point of death, so that he could bring a people to himself, rescued from this world. He's worthy. Let's pray.